right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 27 this morning, Genesis 1, 27. And as Pastor Stephen said in his prayer, I'll be preaching on the subject of transgenderism. Um, and just to, to be honest with you guys, this sermon's going to be long. This is the longest sermon I've ever written in my entire life. Uh, so if you need to go to the restroom or if you're, I guess it's just my daughter in here right now, if you need to take your child out, that's fine. Um, the sermon's going to be posted online today, and I'll provide a manuscript to anyone who needs it if you happen to miss anything. Uh, but let's go ahead and begin. Uh, some of you may already know this, but the Canadian government has just put a new law into effect on January 8th of this year. It's called Bill C-4. And this law declares that counseling a person whether a child or an adult, even if they are willfully seeking out help on their own, counseling anybody to abandon homosexual practices, homosexual desires, or transgender identity or practices is illegal in Canada. To give counsel that is aimed at changing sexual practices or desires or encouraging someone to accept the biological sex that they were born is now illegal in Canada. Now, to be clear, it is still perfectly legal to counsel and encourage people to pursue homosexual and transgender desires, but it is illegal to give counsel against it. Um, and this law was passed unanimously by the Canadian government. There was no dissent whatsoever in their government, none. And the penalty for breaking this law is up to five years in prison. So in Canada, if you counsel someone to adopt the sexual and gender ethics of the Bible and you get caught, you can go to prison for five years. Um, let me read some things to you from that bill. It criminalizes, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy or promoting or advertising conversion therapy. So causing someone to undergo conversion therapy includes both the one giving counsel and a parent or guardian who might seek counsel for their child. So the parent who wants their kid to get help, can get five years in prison, as well as the person giving the counsel to the child. So that, that's what that, that language is there for. And if you don't know what conversion therapy is, uh, this bill defines it. Conversion therapy is, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, cisgender is the gender that you were born, it's your default settings, or change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth." End quote. That's what conversion therapy is. This definition is very broad. It's intentionally broad. And it can clearly be used against any preacher or pastor who either speaks against homosexuality and transgenderism or who counsels a person to submit to the word of God and repent of their sin in these areas. With the passing of this law, it is now officially illegal in Canada to preach, teach, or counsel concerning biblical, sexual, and gender ethics. It is now illegal up north to do that. Also, it's interesting to note that the preamble of the bill says that the belief that, here, here, here we go, th this belief that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth 
are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. Let me rephrase that a bit. The preamble to this law says that the belief that heterosexuality and being the gender that you were born, the belief that that is preferable to homosexuality or transgenderism is a myth. According to Canadian law, since that is in the preamble to the bill, as of January 8th, the belief in God's design for sexuality and gender is now legally considered a myth in Canada. It is a myth, according to the Canadian government. And again, any Canadian who breaks this law can be punished with up to five years in prison. Brothers and sisters, the Canadian government has officially made it illegal to preach the gospel to homosexuals and people who reject their biological sex. Because you have to confront sin before you can tell them the gospel. It's now illegal to preach the gospel to such people. The Canadian government has officially declared that it has the authority to tell the church of God what we are and are not allowed to teach. The Canadian government has officially declared the word of God to be a myth. The Canadian government has officially declared its intention to formally persecute the people of God if they dare to speak what God has said in his word. The Canadian government has officially declared itself to be God. And it is now commanding all Christians in Canada to come and bow down and worship. And today, in Canada, there is a coalition of pastors, godly men who fear the Lord, who have decided to preach on the issues of homosexuality, transgenderism, and tyrannical governments. Some of them have decided to start months-long series on these things now. And they're doing so in open and glad defiance of their government. And they're doing so in order to declare the lordship of Christ over the world and the church. They are defying tyrants this morning, not knowing what's going to happen to them tomorrow. And they're defying tyrants in the name of the king, Jesus Christ, that's a godly thing. In doing this, they're giving testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this coalition of godly men have asked their American brothers to join them in preaching on these subjects today. And Pastor Stephen and I thought it would be a good thing for us to join them. Uh, so this sermon is a show of solidarity with our brothers in Canada who are defying tyrants, preaching the word of God, and bracing themselves for the consequences of doing so. And also, it's good for us to hear these things because I've, I've never personally preached a sermon on this subject. But before we get into this, I need to clarify a couple of things. Uh, first, I reject the idea of transgenderism. It's not real is what I mean. It's a fiction. Uh, the people are real and they're worthy of our respect and compassion, but transgenderism is not a real thing. You cannot transition from male to female or female to male. It's simply not possible. You can mutilate your body. And you can take hormones all you want, but you cannot undo what God has made you. You cannot alter reality. But for the sake of time and the use of common language, I will refer to individuals who reject their God-given gender as transgender. Okay, I reject the terminology, but for the sake of, of common language, so we all know what I'm talking about. And so I don't have to use two sentences to refer to, to someone who rejects their gender. Uh, I'm, just, I'm going to use the word transgender. Uh, second... This sermon is not intended to address intersex situations. Someone says, what is intersex? Um, someone who is intersex has been born with a genetic defect that results in abnormalities with chromosomes, external genitalia, and the reproductive system. You think of hermaphroditism, that, that would be a, an intersex issue, right? And that is not the same thing as transgenderism. It's not. 
no matter how much transgender advocates try to compare the two. That's because intersex is a genetic defect, not an, uh, not an ideology. There is science behind intersex situations. It is a physical abnormality, and doctors treat such people in order to help them become the gender that they biologically are. Okay, this is not the same thing. Intersex is not the same thing as transgenderism. Now let me define transgenderism. Transgenderism is identifying as a gender that does not match one's biological sex. It is presenting oneself and or identifying as a different gender than the gender you were born. Transgenderism is a rejection of one's biological sex and the adoption of a gender, or gender identity contrary to one's biology. And brothers and sisters, I do not say this to mock, but rather just to speak frankly, as I often do and intend to do throughout this whole sermon, transgenderism is madness. It's just madness. It is a declaration that contrary to all evidence, science, knowledge, and the history of humanity, that a person can actually be, not just think, but actually be a gender contrary to what they're born. It's madness. Until recent history, we used to classify such thinking as a mental illness. We, we used to view it as something that needs correcting. We used to view such people as worthy of our help and pity. We used to help such people learn to embrace the gender that God made them, but not anymore. Not anymore. Our culture has come to embrace transgenderism as good and normal and healthy and even encourage people to pursue and indulge their feelings to become the gender that they desire. This is madness. And our culture has embraced it pretty much unquestioningly. And then that makes us ask the question, how did we get here? As a society, how did we get here? Now, there are more studied men than I who can give you more detailed answers, uh, but I think it can be summarized in one word and, and just to, to maybe oversimplify it all. That word is relativism. Relativism is the belief that truth cannot be known, and so truth is relative to the individual, and it's up to each individual person uh, to figure out what is true and right and good for them. And there is no objective standard. And some, some of you, I can see it on your faces. You're like, what in the world is that? Like, this sounds kind of crazy. Well, if you think it sounds crazy, you shouldn't because you're surrounded by it every day. And maybe you've actually imbibed some of it without realizing it. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Live your truth. Right? Or, or, or that's your truth, not mine. Or you do you. Or, well, that's true for you, but not for me. Or, hey, can't you see that even though you're both disagreeing on this subject, that you're, you're, you can both be right? Or find your own way. Find your happiness. Do what you feel. Or this one, follow your heart. These are all statements that are birthed from relativism. They are a rejection of a standard of truth, happiness, goodness, and rightness. And the individual has become the standard for those things. That's why it's all your truth, your happiness, your way, your heart. Our culture is one that declares that everyone gets to decide what is right for them. And the only bad thing to do is to tell someone that they're wrong or shouldn't do something. And transgenderism is simply the fruit of this kind of thinking. It's just the fruit of it. 
The transgender person is just living his or her truth, aren't they? They're just following their heart. They're finding their own way. They're doing what they feel. And since there is no standard of truth, who are you to tell them that they're wrong? Transgenderism is the fruit of relativism. Which then tells us that this whole issue is a matter of authority. Who determines truth? Who? Who determines reality? Who has the right to determine what we are? Brothers and sisters, God is not silent on this issue. He has spoken in his word and he has spoken with authority as God Almighty. And he has spoken with clarity. And so now we are going to turn to the true source of authority in order to hear the truth. We turn now to hear the voice of Almighty God speaking through his word. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, we humbly ask for your blessing this morning. Please grant to us understanding, insight, and glad reception of the truth. Help us to see our creatureliness. Help us to see your authority as our creator. Help us to see things as you see them because you are reality and you are truth. Sanctify us by your word. Please bless us with understanding and glorify yourself this morning through the preaching of your word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Also, forgive me if I have to take a lot of drinks. My voice is starting to go out. But the text before us is, is simple, plain, and clear. It's a crystal clear declaration that God created mankind that he created mankind in his image, and that he created mankind male and female. Now, I will not be addressing in depth what it means to be made in the image of God. That's another sermon for another day with a whole lot of intricacies and a whole lot of debates amongst theologians. And it's good stuff, but we're, I'm not going to be delving deeply into the image of God. But what, what, I, what I want to focus on this morning is actually much, much simpler than that. So much that I confessed to Pastor Stephen this past week, I felt silly making the outline for this sermon because it is so simple. Um, I'm going to break down this text, not phrase by phrase, but by breaking it down into four pieces or points that are clearly being made in this text. And those four points are found in the last clause of our verse. Male and female, he created them. That is, God created them. So here are the four pieces of the text I want us to consider. One, God. He is the he. Two, created. Three, them. And fourth, male and female. That is the outline for this sermon. And then we're going to do some conclusions that are also going to be pretty lengthy. But God created them, male and female. So let's start with the first piece of our text. God. This is the most fundamental place to start. Who is God? As, as Dave Allison uh, reminded us, Right, in his, his sermon on the, on the first question of the catechism, God is the first and chiefest being. God, that's who he is, the first and chiefest being. He is the first. He is the first in existence. He has no beginning. He is eternal. 
As Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When there was nothing, there was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion and harmony and blessedness and happiness, content in himself. Before there was the universe or anything in it, there was God. God, dependent upon none. As our confession says, subsisting in and of himself, needing nothing, having all contentedness and blessedness of himself. God, therefore, is the one who just is. He is. He's I am. That's what he says his name is. I am. He just is. He has all being in and of himself. He comes from none. He is of none. He just is. He's pure being. He is the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator. God is first. And as first, all things that exist then have come into existence by him. He is independent, but all other things are dependent upon him for their very existence. By his will, he brought all things into existence that exist. He's the creator, and all things are held together by him. He's the one who caused it all to happen. He is of none, but all things are of him, for him, and to him. He's the first, and he is the chiefest. That is, he is the highest authority. There are none above him. There are none equal to him. He alone is God. And as Dave Allison illustrated in his catechetical sermon two weeks ago, think of a tribal chief. God is the chiefest. The chief makes the rules. The chief is supreme above everyone else in the tribe. The chief is the honored one. He's the lawgiver of the tribe. He is the respected one. He is supreme over all others. He is the one before whom all the rest of the tribe must bow. And brothers and sisters, God is the chiefest. Of all beings, he is the king. He is the lawgiver. He dictates how all things will be. He is high above all things in the universe. He is distinct from all that he has made. He is holy. He is other. He is different. He is not like us. He is the greatest. He is the chiefest. He is God. There are none above him to appeal to. He is the supreme being of all beings. He is the first and chiefest being. But I want us to consider now a couple of specific attributes of God. We, we went very broad, first and chiefest. I want to I zero in on a few attributes. First, he is sovereign. Right? We, we ring this bell a lot in this church. But he is sovereign. No one can tell him what to do. No one can legitimately correct him. He does as he pleases, and none can stay his hand or ask him, why have you done this? As Psalm, I believe it's 115, says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. He rules over all things in this universe. He rules over all the works of his hands. The universe and all in it belongs to him, and he determines how all things will be. In short, that he is sovereign means that he is the king. And he is omnipotent. He is Genesis 17.1. I am God Almighty. He is the Almighty God. He lacks no power to do all that he desires to do. Because of his almighty power, he is able to accomplish all that he desires to accomplish. There's no lack of power in him. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be overpowered. Hear me. This is relevant. 
All the beings in the universe may shake their fists at their maker, but it does not matter. Why? Because he's omnipotent. He cannot be dethroned. He is almighty God. His creation may attempt to reject his rule and reign, but it doesn't matter. The creation cannot change anything because he has all power in himself. And he is omniscient. He knows all things. In knowing all things, his counsel is infallible. He is God only wise. As Paul reminds us in Romans 11, no creature has ever given him counsel. No one has ever given him advice. Why? Because he doesn't need any. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't need do-overs. He doesn't need greater insight into a situation so that he can reason through it and make a better choice than he did. He does what is most wise always. He's never wrong. It is impossible for him to be wrong in his judgments and decisions and decrees. Again, I already said, Paul tells us in Romans eleven thirty four, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He is God only wise. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. If God had foolishness, it would still be wiser than us. He is God only wise wise. And lastly, as far as attributes go that I want us to consider, he is perfect. He's perfect. He never gets anything wrong. He never does anything wrong. He never wrongs any of his creation. He is perfect in all of his ways, all of his decisions, all of his actions. In every way conceivable, he is perfect. He is righteous, just, and morally perfect, and he is unquestionably perfect in all other areas as well. What am I getting at? He doesn't mess up. He's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes, for that would necessitate an imperfection in him. But since he is perfect, he is unable to make mistakes. Truly, God is the first and chiefest being. And we've only considered three attributes. He is above all others. He alone is God. There are none for us to compare him to, as he says through Isaiah, whom will you liken me to or compare me to that I should be like him? There are none like him. We get our being from his being. We are dependent upon him. Again, he is above us. He's perfect. He's wise. He's infallible. He's mighty. He's sovereign. He's the lawgiver. He's perfect and matchless in all of his ways. He doesn't make mistakes. And he is the author of all reality. Again, Romans 11, all things are of him, to him, and for him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He is God. He is God. I want us to see right from the beginning in this first point that God is not like us. I know it's very simple, but God is not like us. He is high and lifted up. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is the first and chiefest being. God and God alone is like this. And so all other things are under him. If we don't start there, Everything is confused. Everything is muddy. If we don't start with this, we must start with God as supreme and everything under him before we can move on to anything else. Because this is actually the grounding principle of our entire religion. That God is God. We have to see that. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. But we need to see that God is God and mankind is not God. 
Rather, we are under him in every way conceivable. He is above us and he is God. And now we move on to our second piece of the text. Created. God created. I know I've already mentioned that he is the creator, but let's do it again. I'm going to be stepping over the points. They're going to step on each other the whole time. God created. Of his own sovereign will, he used his own power to bring things into existence that previously did not exist. He spoke, and by the power of his created word, he brought everything into existence. This is what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. God created all things. And there are two things for us to think on when we consider the fact that God created all things. The first is the simple fact that creating something of necessity involves design and intent. You do not create without first having in mind what it is that you want to create, right? You don't build a building without schematics. You don't paint something without having in mind what you want to paint first. And again, these are imperfect analogies, but I think you get my point. There is design and intent when you create. So then we can conclude that similarly with God, there was a true design and intention when he created, because that is simply the nature of creating anything. So then, and I know that this is such a simple point, but again, it's necessary for us to see God has a design to his entire creation. What am I getting at? Nothing was left to chance. Nothing was left to chance. Nothing is random. God created things to be a certain way. He intended things to be a certain way. He designed things to be a certain way. He knows what everything is supposed to be and how everything is supposed to function and operate. And so he created things properly according to his will and design. And remember, as we've already seen in the first point, God is sovereign, all wise in his plans, and all powerful in his ability to do what he intends. And he's perfect in every way. So he's not getting anything wrong. So then we conclude that there is no flaw in his designs. He is not a bad designer. He is God, and his intent and design in creating all things is good. More than that, when he looked over his creation, what did he say? It is very good. It is very good. Hear me. That is the all-knowing, infallible, perfect God's estimation of his creation and design. It was very good. He didn't say, it's all right. Right? He didn't say, ah, that'll do, I guess. Maybe there are some flaws and kinks that I need to mend and work out later. No, he said, this is very good. And that means that he, the infallible God, his commentary on his own creation is, there was no flaws in this. I did a good job. God patted himself on the back, so to speak. It was very good. I did a very good thing here. There's no flaws in his design. We see then that the relevance for the subject of transgenderism is this. Nothing in creation can say that God designed anything improperly. Whatever he created has been created exactly the way that the all-wise and perfect God intended. There is no flaw in his design for creation, and so there is no flaw in his design for humanity in particular. But a second thing that we need to see from the fact that God created is this. 
He has complete rights over all that he has made. The people hate this. We do not like this in our flesh. The natural man does not like this. God has complete rights over all that he has made, and he made everything. So he has rights to everything. Consider this basic truth that everyone recognizes, I think, right? Here, here it is. Whatever you create, you own. Right? And again, this is a perfect, an imperfect analogy because we can't actually create things. We make things out of stuff that already existed, right? God created all things out of nothing. So again, this is an imperfect analogy. But overall, we, we, we would agree with this. Whatever you create, you own. It's yours. You made it. You made it. It's yours. Without you, it wouldn't exist. And so you're free to do with it whatever you choose. More than that, if you're creating something, when you're in the process of creating, you have the exclusive rights to make it whatever you want. Do you not? You're the one making it. And the thing being fashioned, the thing being created, has no say in the matter. You are the creator in this instance. You created the thing. And so you get to determine reality for the creation. And supposing for a moment, now we're really getting out there, supposing for a moment that the thing you created was a rational and intelligent being, if that was possible for you to do, we would all agree that that being then owes everything to you, owes its existence to you, and therefore is obligated to submit to whatever you intended it to be, whatever you created it to be. Brothers and sisters, all created things owe their entire existence to the God who made us. All that has been created by God is therefore intrinsically bound and under obligation to him because the creation derives its life from his, its intelligence from his, its being from his. The creation is bound and under obligation to the creator. And the creator, or rather the creation, has no right to rebel against the creator or his designs. As the Bible tells us, the potter has rights over the clay to do with it as he sees fit. The potter has rights to make the clay into whatever he pleases. He has the right to design the clay and mold it and fashion it into whatever he wants. And the clay has no right to talk back to the potter or ask, why have you made me this way? Clay is clay. And so the clay is to accept its clayness and submit to the potter and his design and his will. Brothers and sisters, God is the potter and we are the clay. And as his creations, as the clay, we have no right to talk back to him or question his designs, or create our own designs for what the clay should have been. God has the right, and that's because God is the creator. He is the potter. Let me summarize it this way, maybe. Maybe this will be helpful. Since God is the creator, since God is the potter, he gets to determine what reality is. He gets to determine what reality is. He gets to determine how things really are, not us. And all of his creation is obligated to him. All of 
Creation is obligated to live under him gladly, respecting him as the one who owns all things and has given life and existence to all things. The creation is designed and owned and obligated to submit to the creator. That is an absolute implication of what it means for God to create. So let me summarize this point. God created all things, and he did so with intent and a design in mind, and his design is perfect. And as his creatures, he has total sovereign rights to dictate what we are. He has the right to determine reality for us, and we have no right to rebel or talk back to him. Rather, we are under obligation to submit to the one who has made us. And part of that means submitting to his design for us. And that leads us to the third piece of our text. Them. God created them. Who is the them in our text? Clearly, it's mankind. God created them. God created mankind. Brothers and sisters, this is the crux of it all. This is where the battle rages. This is the core dispute. And and what I'm I'm getting ready to say, really, I've already covered in the last point, but I'm going to do it again because it's worth our time to really zero in on this because this is where the battle rages. God created man. God created all things, yes, but specifically when considering the topic of transgenderism, we must focus on that. God created mankind, and this means something so basic and yet so important to our thinking here, and here's what it is. Since God created mankind, man is not God's equal. We are not his equal. God is above man. God owns man. God has exclusive sovereign rights over man. We are not his equals. Yes, we're rational beings. Yes, we make choices. Yes, we can think and reason for ourselves to one degree or another. But we are not his equals. Rather, we are under him in every single way conceivable. He is God and he created them. God designed man. He has purposes for man. I I hope you can see. God owns us in every way, and that means specifically he owns you as an individual in every single way. Again, yes, we think. Yes, we make choices and decisions. But since God created us, we have no right whatsoever to rebel against his designs. We have no right. God has the right to tell us what we are. He has the right to tell us why we exist. He has the right to tell us what we are to do, what we are to believe, how we are to think, how we are to live, what we are to abstain from, and every other thing that you can think of. He has the right to dictate it to us. Self-determination is sin. We have no right to determine a single thing for ourselves. We are obligated to him. Without him, we do not exist. Without him, we are nothing. And so it is sheer arrogance 
for mankind to think that we have the right to determine what we are when God has already decided what we are. We are not his equals. We are not creators. We don't, we don't dictate reality. We do not get to contradict God's designs and plans and intentions. We do not have the right. We are under him. He is the chiefest being, which of necessity means we are not the chiefest being. Rather, we are under him. Brothers and sisters, this is the great battle of our day. Transgenderism is a declaration that mankind gets to determine what we are. That mankind gets to create our own reality, no matter what the creator has said or already done. It is a declaration of God's, or rather it is a contradiction of God's design and an attempt to become the creator of oneself. I was, I was looking around at this pro-transgender group on Facebook and a, a, a meme flashed through that I can't get out of my mind. And it was someone in the meme saying, I did such a good job naming me because the transgender person changed their name. I'm so proud of my name. My name is so good. I did such a good job naming me. What does that show? And I'm not saying it's an evil thing intrinsically to change your name. But what does that show? I want to create me. I want to determine and dictate every single thing about me. I want to be God over myself. I want to create myself. And I think I'm doing a great job of it. We are not the creators of ourselves. Since God created them, since God created mankind, we see clearly that we are not the creator. And so we have neither the true ability nor the right to rebel against God's design and intentions for the human race. Instead, I'll say it again, man is obligated as creatures, as the creations of God to live under him. And living under him, we are to respect his rule, his creative prerogatives, his authority, his designs, his laws, and every other thing that he is pleased to do or say to us. He created them, which means he created us. And that's what we must hold to. We have to keep this distinction in mind that God is God and we are not. Because this is the battle that we're engaging in when we engage the issue of transgenderism. It is nothing less than the battle of the godness of God and the creatureliness of man. And now we come to our fourth piece of the text. Male and female. God created them, male and female. The them of our text is mankind in general, yes, broadly speaking. But more specifically, Adam and Eve are being mentioned here because they were the first, as we see in the retelling of this verse in Genesis chapter 2. And God made Adam to be a man, and God made Eve to be a woman. I'm really not trying to insult anyone's intelligence. I, I, this is the text. I have to walk through the text. God made Adam to be a man, and God made Eve to be a woman. From the beginning, God made mankind male and female. And we see right off the rip that God determined which one of them would be the male and which one of them would be the female. He made Adam one way and made Eve another way. And this means that God is the one who made the distinctions between men and women. And he did so from the very beginning of the human race. He made us to be male and female. And clearly from the beginning, 
I, I, I want you to see this. He determined which one would be which. He made one to be man and another to be woman. He didn't create them and ask them, which one do you want to be? He determined ahead of time. This means then that gender is not an accident of nature. It is a gift from God. It is part of his design from the very beginning. Hear me, this is important. You're gonna, if you're going to engage with this, you have to keep this in mind. The distinctions between men and women, therefore, are real and not merely cultural or societal. Now, why do I mention that? Because we would say, well, of course they're real then. Hear me out. Transgender advocates claim that the distinctions between men and women are merely societal and that they are not real, that they're not ingrained into us biologically, right? That, that like you, you may have whatever genitalia, but like that doesn't mean anything because the differences between men and women are not real differences. And so you can be whatever gender you choose regardless of your body because the differences between men and women aren't real. They're merely cultural. But if you read the text, if you read the text before us, you see that God created men to be men and women to be women before society existed. I don't know if you've ever considered that. I hadn't until I was studying for this sermon. Before there was a culture, there was male and female. And how do I know that? Well, because before there was even a family, there was male and female. Before God gave Eve to Adam, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? Like that text in Genesis 2, that's a wedding. God gave the woman to the man and the two became one flesh, right? Before that happened, she existed as a female and he existed as a male. Before there was even a family, there was male and female. Before there was society, there was male and female. By God's design. Again, God designed each human being to be either male or female. And that means that we don't get to determine what we are. He created us to be one or the other from the very beginning. And some people say, well, that was the beginning. Right, but that maybe doesn't have any bearing on us. That's just what he did at the first. Well, Psalm 139 teaches us that God continues his creative act in nature even now. In Psalm 139, King David tells us, he knit me together in my mother's womb. So then, once we are fully created, and I'm not saying that children in the womb, from conception there's life and it's human life, but once we are fully created, that is fully developed in the womb, we are what he intends us to be. God's creative action in determining whether we are male or female is there in the womb because as David said, he knit us together in our mother's womb. His design and intention is still occurring today in babies developing in the womb. And that design is either male or female according to his good and sovereign will. Men and women are truly different by God's own design. We see this biologically and in personality, right? And I'm gonna go through basic things you all already know. Men are the bigger and stronger of the two. It is a fact. Again, generally speaking, are there exceptions to all the things that I'm getting ready to say? Absolutely. A woman who trains for Olympic wrestling all of her life could beat me up. 
Okay, like let's, let's, we can call that what it is. That's fine, right? There are exceptions to the rule. But men are, in general, the bigger and stronger of the two. They are naturally more aggressive. Men have greater instincts to protect and fight, especially for those who are under their care. Men tend to have personality traits that are good for leadership. What do I mean? Men are more assertive. It's a fact. There have been studies done. Men are more assertive and confident than women. Men also have a drive in them to provide and produce more than women. A lazy man is a miserable man. Right? It's part of who we are to work and provide. You show me a man who is unemployed, he's often depressed, is he not? We were created to provide in a way that women are not. So again, those are just a few examples, but on the other hand, I feel like I could start a stand-up comedy bit here. On the other, the differences between men and women, we've joked about that forever, right? Uh, on the other hand, we see women can do something that men can't do, have babies, right? Just real quick, birthing persons, that's an insult to women. Mothers have children. Mothers have children. An aside here, this whole thing is an assault on women, by the way. This whole transgender thing is absolutely an assault on women. Never mind, I'm not going to step away from my notes. Women can have babies, and because of that, God has designed women to be more nurturing of the two genders. Women are more gentle and sensitive to the needs of others. Women tend to delight being around and caring for children more than men do. Right? Women tend to be the more social and better at communicating than men. Women are naturally more agreeable than men are. Right? Women are uh, naturally more submissive and less assertive than men. They tend, to uh, they, they tend to desire to come alongside rather than lead the charge on things. Right? Again, they're, they're, they're the more d domestic of the two. Right? They, they nurture, they, they nest in their homes, right? And take ownership of the home in ways that men often don't care about or don't think to. So again, but, but not only in biology and personality traits, and those are just some examples, right? We could go on and on and on about differences between men and women. But we see God himself upholding the distinction between the two genders after creation. And we see this when God declares that there are certain things that men and women are to do that are different. There are different roles. For example, men are to be heads of homes, not women. Men are to make judgments and decisions for their families and lead them both spiritually and in earthly matters as well. And women are to be submissive to their husbands and assist them in these things. Now hear me, does that mean that women are unable to lead their homes well? Certainly not. Right? Single mothers and widows are forced to do it all the time. But the point is that God is making a distinction between the two genders even after creation. Men are to do one thing. Well, how do I know if I'm a man? Well, I made you different. <laughs> Men are to do this. Women are to do this. We see the same thing when it comes to the church. Women are not to hold church offices. Now, does that mean that women aren't smart enough or wise enough to lead the church or teach the Bible? Well, certainly not. Women aren't stupid, right? Women are not stupid, but God nevertheless forbids it. Why? God is making a clear distinction between men and women according to his design. My point is this. God himself upholds the distinctions that he made at creation. And so the differences between men and women, according to our creator, are real and not merely societal. They're not cultural. 
right? They're built into the created order according to the will of the creator. And in fact, God actually takes this so seriously. There's a verse tucked away that most Christians don't know exists in their Old Testament because Christians don't read the Old Testament today. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 22.5, there is a verse that teaches us that God takes this so seriously that to blur the lines between the two genders is prohibited. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. To simply present yourself as the opposite sex is a horrible evil. It is an abomination. Not to mention actually claiming that you are the opposite sex. Since the sexes are indeed different by God's design, we are not to present ourselves as contrary to what God has made us. That's what Deuteronomy 22.5 is all about. So again, God is telling us that his distinctions between male and female are real and are to be observed. God made mankind male and female, period. There is no debate to be had. We are his creatures, and so we are to submit to what he made us. We don't have the right to contradict our maker or blur the lines or question what he has designed and done. We don't have the authority, nor do we have the right. Our text says male and female, he created them. And this verse strikes at transgender ideology like a lightning bolt from heaven, and it blasts it to pieces. Male and female, he created them. And each one of us are to submit to God's design for mankind in general and for each one of us in particular. Now, having looked at the text, we're now going to draw some conclusions from it. And I don't mean three quick points of application like I try to do. We're going to be here for a minute. Let's draw some conclusions. First, I don't want this sermon to be a mere intellectual exercise in explaining why transgenderism is wrong. That's not what I want this to be. I want each one of us, and I hope that you've seen so far, I want each one of us to see that God is God and that we are under him. Each one of us. People who are transgender are not the only ones who need to see this. Everyone needs to see this. Everyone needs to believe this. And we as Christians need to remember and apply this to our lives as well. And listen, though the application is different for us, this needs to be applied to every area of our lives. You may not struggle with, with uh, the, the temptation to think that you're a gender other than what God made you. That may not be really on the table for you. But maybe you're greedy. God is God and you are not and he tells you what you are to do with your money. Maybe you're proud and you overestimate yourself and God is God and you are not and you're to humble yourself as he tells you to be humble and, and consider others more important than yourselves. You get the point that I'm making. This application is exceedingly broad. God is God and we are not. So take that general application just right off the rip and search your life and ask yourself the very broad question that will hurt every one of us. Where am I not submitting to God as God? Where in my life am I not respecting the creator? Where am I trying to be him? Where am I rejecting his authority over me? And wherever you find it, repent. This text is for everyone. It's not just for people who claim to be transgender. This text and the implications of it are for all of us. But 
Second point, we must conclude then from this text concerning transgenderism that rejecting the biological sex you were born and identifying as a gender contrary to what you actually are is a horrible, wicked sin. Let's call it like the Bible calls it, right? It's not mean to tell the truth. There is no 11th commandment that says thou shalt be nice. I'm not telling you to be unkind or mean, but not everything that we're commanded to do in the Bible is nice according to our culture standards. Let's call it like it is. We need to talk about this sin like we would talk about adultery, murder, pedophilia, fornication, theft, blasphemy, and all the rest. Enough of this nonsense of evangelical Christians thinking that we need to use kids' gloves with this stuff. We shouldn't be mealy-mouthed about this sin. Tell me, why will a pastor or why will a Christian go super hard on adultery in the pulpit and then turn into a coward with this issue? That's hypocritical. That's fearing men more than you fear God. We shouldn't be mealy-mouthed with any sin. Transgenderism is a great sin against God, and it is a vile thing. And it is especially grievous because it denies the most basic truths of the Christian religion. And here, I say it's especially grievous. Hear me, not all sin is equally heinous. It's all equally damnable, but not all sin. Stealing a pack of gum and committing an act of sodomy are not the same thing. Some sins are worse than others, right? Like we, we know this from nature. Not only that, but Christ teaches us punishment in hell is going to be worse on some people than others. But this sin is especially grievous. Why? Because it denies the most basic truths of the Christian religion. And in doing so, denies the most basic truths of reality itself. It denies the creator-creation distinction. It denies the godness of God. It denies the creatureliness of mankind. And in denying those things, what transgenderism does is it lowers God to nothing and raises up mankind in God's place. Transgenderism is at root the idolatry of the self. I think that's the best way that I can put it. It is at root the idolatry of the self. It's self-worship. It's a declaration that God does not have rights over his creation, but rather the creation is sovereign over itself. It's a declaration of independence from the rule and reign of God over the individual. It is the assumption of the divine rights of God to the self. It is the individual raising himself or herself up to the level of God. It is an attempt to dethrone God. It is a rejection of God and putting up the self in his place as the one who gets to call the shots over the individual. It is the idolatry of the self. And therefore, transgenderism is a most grievous and damnable sin. It is worshiping the creation, oneself, rather than the creator. And that is the sin that Paul speaks about very clearly in Romans 1. And the apostle says that because of this, the wrath of God is revealed. Transgenderism is a horrible blasphemy that declares I am God and God is not. I get to dictate reality, not the author of reality. And I get to choose what I am, not the great I am who created me. This sin is like the first sin. Did God really say? Did God really say you're a man? Did God really create you a woman? No. But if you pursue the thing that you want, you will be like God. You can become God. 
This is the sin of autonomy. That, that, that man is a law to himself and not God. It's a rejection of the authority and kingship of God. Again, it is self-worship. It is, you could say, it is self-deification. And therefore, we must conclude that those who persist in this sin, those who do not come to Christ in faith and repentance over this sin, will perish in hell under the wrath of God for eternity. And that is because God punishes idolaters. He will not be mocked. He will not tolerate any gods before him. And he will not tolerate his creatures attempting to make themselves gods and take his place. But the third point, we need to remember something else. The transgender person is not without hope. We, we cannot forget this. I, I confess I have forgotten this. And it's easy to whenever we're assaulted daily in our culture for these things. But there is hope for the transgender person. Christ can save them. Even them. Yes, them. Christ can save them. How do I know that? Because Christ can save idolaters. Idolatry is not the unforgivable sin. And honestly, we are all idolaters of some sort. We've all rejected God and his rule over us in various ways. The transgender person's idolatry is just more grievous because it's more open and visible and flies in the face of God more directly than some of our idolatries. But all sin at root, to one degree or another, is a form of idolatry. And God saved us through Christ, didn't he? So then God clearly can and does save idolaters. He can and does save self-worshippers. Christ can save even them if they will come to him. And so we are to preach the gospel to them. We are to confront their sin and name it openly, without kid gloves and without apology. But we are to also give them the hope of salvation through faith in the Christ who lived, died, and was raised to save even the most vile sinners. His promise of salvation is for all who will come to him, even those who claim to be transgender. We can't forget this. We must offer this hope. And more than that, Christ promises to free those who come to him. He promises to free sinners from the tyranny of sin, Satan, and the flesh. He promises to break the power of sin over his people so that they can progressively, more and more, gain victory over those sins that once held them captive. The gospel offers the forgiveness of sins and also freedom from sin more and more progressively throughout life and then finally at our glorification at death. Forgiveness and freedom is offered to whoever will come to Christ, even for the transgender person. And we can't forget this. Rather, we must preach it and we must hold this hope out to them as we engage them. Forgiveness and freedom is offered in Christ. We must offer it on his behalf. A fourth application of our text is this. We must remember that the person who claims to be transgender is made in the image of God. It's right there in our text. So God created man in his own image. And there's a lot to be said about this I'm not going to get into, but know this. Being made in the image of God means that the person has worth and value because God has given it to them. 
and God is infinitely valuable, and therefore those made in his image have derivative worth because of him. And since that is true, we are to treat all image bearers with respect and dignity. This may be one of the easiest things to, for, to forget. Those who claim to be transgender are to be treated with respect. We are not to mock them. I confess I've, I've sinned in this area. We are not to mock them, belittle them, or treat them as subhuman. We are not to think that we are superior to them, and we are not to treat them in any way that we would not want to be treated. Now let's make a, a clear distinction here. Hear me, please. We are not to show any respect whatsoever to their ideology. We assault it. It is a sin to respect their beliefs about transgenderism. Their beliefs are worthy of a measure of mockery and scorn. Their beliefs on this issue are evil, and we are to tear those beliefs to the ground in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not respect their ideology, but we do show respect to them. And that is a hard distinction to keep in mind sometimes, and that is a hard tightrope to walk at times, but we are to respect them because they are image bearers. And not only are we to show a measure of respect to them as image bearers, but we are to pity them as our fellow human beings who are slaves to sin. The situation of the transgender person is sad. The, the situation of every unregenerate person is sad, but especially them, I think. Transgender people are often suicidal. They desire to mutilate their healthy bodies or have already. They are confused. They are mentally unstable. They are living in a delusion, living in utter fiction. And listen, pretty much nobody in our society is willing to help them. Nobody. And if you try to help them, you're a bigot. Nobody in our culture wants to help them. Our culture encourages such people to pursue their own delusions. And they're encouraged to take puberty blockers and hormones as children that will permanently change their bodies in many ways and leave them sterile. They are encouraged to get cosmetic surgeries that will leave them permanently mutilated. And again, often it is children who are encouraged to begin pursuing these things and their brains aren't even fully developed yet. These people are doing permanent damage to themselves and if they ever change their mind about what they've done in the future, and many do, way more than the media wants you to know, it's too late for them and the damage is done. And no one cares. No one cares. And doctors, teachers, professionals, or their other alleged professionals are lying to them. And telling them to pursue these things as if these things is the answer to making them happy. And instead of trying to help them make peace with the gender God has made them, they're encouraged to rebel against God and go after those things that will ultimately make them miserable. Do we have no pity? Did you know that 41% of all people who identify as transgender will attempt suicide at least one time? 41%. More than that, in Sweden, a very pro-transgender society, 
a study was done a few years ago, I think it was 2017, that showed that there is a 19 times greater risk of death by suicide after a sex reassignment surgery compared to the general population. These people are told, get the surgery and you'll finally be the thing, the, the, the gender that you really wanted to be all along and, and you'll be at peace with yourself. And there's a 19 times higher percent chance that they kill themselves after the surgery compared to everyone else. Have we no pity? These people are depressed and unstable and suicidal because of their confusion and sin. People caught in this sin are miserable and they're being fed lies by the world that everything will get better if they just take the hormones, get the surgery, change their name, and present themselves as the, as the opposite gender. But it's just not true. We have evidence that it's not true. But nobody wants to tell them the truth. Nobody wants to help them. All sin kills ultimately. But this sin in particular... Rejecting God's design of male and female leads to suicide on a massive scale. It kills in a literal earthly way and then gives birth to an eternal death in hell. These people need to be redeemed by Christ, not encouraged to pursue death. Brothers and sisters, we must love them. God help us. We must love them with a sincere biblical love that wants what's best for them. Please may God put this in each one of our hearts, especially mine. We must love them with a love that doesn't view them as enemies to be fought, but as sinners in need of the grace of God and compassion from the Christian. But nobody wants to help them. People just want to affirm them for whatever selfish, self-serving reasons that they have. And they'll masquerade those selfish reasons as love. Those who are encouraging this madness and death are doing so for the sake of their own self-preservation. They know that our culture will call them a bigot and kick them out if they don't encourage it. So out of a sense of self-preservation, they encourage it. Wanting to appear progressive, they encourage it. Wanting to be with the times and not stuck in the dark ages, they'll encourage it. Wanting to climb the social ladder because you can't climb the social ladder if you don't encourage transgenderism, they will encourage it not wanting to be ostracized. And they'll say, I do it because I love the transgender person. No, you do it because you're selfish. You do it because you're self-serving. If you actually cared, you would warn them. Tell me this, is it loving to tell an anorexic woman that you agree with her that she's overweight and needs to follow her heart? Is it loving to tell a suicidal person that their feelings of meaninglessness and worthlessness are actually valid and true and they need to do what they feel? Is that loving? No. This transgender stuff is no different. Encouraging it is not loving because you are encouraging death and damnation. We should pity these people enough to tell them the truth and try to help them. We should preach the gospel to them. We must preach the only message that can set them free from their sin and idolatry and misery and teach them to live at peace with God and his good design for them. Pray for these people and respect them and preach to them and pity them. A fifth point, I only have two more. I know I've been up here for an hour and ten. Brothers and sisters, we must brace ourselves for what may come as a result of our faithfulness to Scripture and our true love of neighbor. 
Remember, as I said in the introduction, Canada has just passed a law that makes the sermon I just preached illegal. And, and counseling anyone according to what you've heard today is also illegal. And please hear me, if it happened there, it can happen here. And I'm pretty sure, historically speaking, when it happens there, it takes it a couple decades and then it happens here on many things. Maybe not everything, but generally speaking, if it happens there, it happens here eventually. And we're fools if we don't think that's the case. Christian, be prepared now to face whatever consequences may come to us. Why do I say that? Why should you prepare your heart for the government to come after you? Why should you prepare your heart to be hated? Because we are not going to bow down. We will not. We will not bow down. Because God is God, not the state. We will not. We will not be silent when God has spoken. And we will not pretend that the government has the right to dictate to the church of Christ what our message will be. God is God over the church and state. What does Psalm 2 say? Therefore, O kings, be wise. Why do the kings of the nations need to be wise? Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. For his wrath is quickly kindled. The son of God who has ascended the throne is ruling over the nations. And he will strike them with a rod of iron if they do not submit to him. Jesus Christ is Lord over the state. Romans 13 teaches us that the state is ordained by God. What does that mean? It's under him and has no right to rebel. God is God, not the state. We must preach this. If we refuse to do so for any reason, then we are guilty of idolatry ourselves. Because in our silence, we are showing that we fear men more than God. We're showing that we value our reputations and friendships and relationships and jobs and whatever else more than God, his truth, and his smile upon us. So brothers and sisters, we will not be silent and we will not bow to a godless state. So we must prepare ourselves for what may come. And as Peter tells us, entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while we continue to do good. God is God and we will declare that to all men. And lastly, my dear brothers and sisters, will you pray for the church in Canada? I was talking to Steve about this yesterday. It was pretty easy for me to write this sermon because I don't have any skin in the game right now. Everyone in Sayota County already thinks I'm a bigot anyway. If they don't know me and they're not a Christian, I'm fine with that. I'm not going to jail for preaching this sermon. There are a lot of pastors in Canada right now who don't know what's going to happen to them tomorrow morning. I was telling Stephen, if we lived in Canada, I would still be preaching this sermon, but we would be having talks right now. Stephen, if they put me away, someone's got to take care of my wife. My bank account needs to be transferred into her name so that they can't, I like, shut down my money. My checks are going to need put in my wife's name. I'm going to need men in the church to come and check on my wife. You get what I'm saying? I started seeing, like, what would this look like if we were Canadians? This is reality for our brothers and sisters up there. Will the government come after pastors for what they say in the pulpit? That is yet to be determined. We don't know. This is the first open act of defiance that the church is giving in Canada. But laws are there because eventually they're going to enforce them. Will you pray for your brothers and sisters? 
Canada has declared war on the church. Some of them are going to go to jail. Families are going to be ruined. And yet the church cannot bow. We've already seen in the last two years that Canada has no problem arresting pastors and Christians for practicing our religion. Pray for them. And pray that God would grant national repentance and a revival among them. Pray that God would give those Christians spines of steel to stand for his truth no matter what the cost. And pray that God would be glorified in their faithfulness. And pray for the same for us. Pray for the same for us because I think soon it will be our turn. Pray that God would help his people convert or ruin all who oppose his gospel and that Christ would reign over the whole earth. Brothers and sisters, pray. In closing, and thank you so much for your patience. In closing, may God help us. May he help us to tell the truth and call sin, sin. May he help us to preach the gospel. May he help us to love our neighbors and respect them. May he help us to embrace whatever suffering we must endure for the sake of Christ. May he help us to pray earnestly for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. And may he help each one of us to submit to him as God. May God help us, and he will. He will surely help his church for whom he gave his only begotten son. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, help us. Help us and help our brothers and sisters in Canada. Help us to not have a stupid bravado where we beat our chest and say, I won't bow because I'm too strong. God, help us to look to you and grant us grace to persevere and be faithful. And God, help our brothers and sisters who are going to face jail time at some point. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but bless our brothers and sisters and help them to be faithful. God, I ask that you would help us to love those who claim to be transgender and to love them with a biblically defined love that has legitimate compassion upon them and earnestly wants to see them redeemed. Help us to stand for truth in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with hearts of love. We pray in his name. Amen. <laughs>